The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. Mrs. French's cat is missing. The signs are posted all over town. Have you seen Honey? We've all seen the posters, but nobody has seen Honey the cat. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her. A little piece each time. You have a lot of spirits in here. But there's one that I'm most worried about because it is so hateful. Come to us. We are ready. Are you? What's with the, the get up? Oh, I do it blend in. You know, you know, zombies don't mess with other zombies. Buddy of mine, makeup guy, showed me how to do this. Cornstarch, you know, some berries, a little licorice for the ladies. It suits my lifestyle. You know, I like to get out and do stuff. Just wait nine holes in the Riviera. Just walk down. Nobody there. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. In spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and they talk about the movies that you will never discuss in a film studies course. It will never make that syllabus, but we're going to apply film studies type theory to that film anyway this week's film is your next and before we get into all of that we've got a full table tonight and many many introductions to do to my extreme right if you would sir my name is dalton stewart and fuck me next to your dead mother no thank you i am so not into that uh across the table slightly right my name's alexander bohannon and dalton i knew you were into some sketchy shit (laughs) (laughs) indeed and directly across a guest host repeating my name is Kirsten Thurkelson, and I'm the fastest runner, but I have this fucking arrow in my back. What does and that have to do with how fast you can run? Might have a lot if you're losing blood. <laughs> my name is Dustin Sells, and I have nothing to say about anything so far. kind of sounds unprofessional. Well, I'm sorry, what? Did you say something? I didn't, I didn't say anything. Because uh, what I thought you just said was it, that it was unprofessional. Yeah, sure. So you just you admit it? You think you? I mean, just if you're going to insult me, I'm right here. I'm, I'm just agreeing with you, Dalton. I'm. I didn't say it was unprofessional. 
Well, I mean, you know, if you feel like it's unprofessional, I didn't. Fine. I didn't say it was unprofessional. Don't don't look at Kirsten. You're talking to me. Look right here, <laughs> kids. If kids. you have something to say, say it to me. <laughs> we all really need to stop fighting right now so that we can talk about the film. You're next. We've got to move on, though, dear listener. We need to warn you: this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that means that there will be spoilerific, spoilerage throughout our analysis. However, we begin the show in the first ten minutes ish. Uh, with our quick uh, synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon is in the room. He is uh, functioning as our sound engineer. We're doing some experimentation with all of that, and we thank him very much uh, for his contributions there. But he will be continuing to go ahead and give us a synopsis, and then we'll quickly move on into our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. And so, with no further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Voice of the Cinema, can you give us that synopsis, please? When the Davison family comes under attack during their wedding anniversary getaway, the gang of mysterious killers soon learns that one of the victims harbors a secret talent for fighting back. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I had no recollection that their name was Davidson. No, I couldn't have told you that if you paid me. That that was that's actually new information to me entirely. And so now, dear listener, we I move just, in I just remember that all the sons have really shitty names. <laughs> Awful. Drake, Terrible Crispin, Crispin, and Felix. Felix. <laughs> Awful. I have a dear friend called Felix, and um, I'm sorry, Felix. I, I'm sorry to him too. I as just well. bought, bought a bag of Lay's called Crispins. So <laughs> <laughs> there's something to that, I think, as well. Well, let's move on, dear listener. Again, this is our spoiler-free section in which we do our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then in the next ten minutes or so, we're going to break into some crazy analysis, and we will spoil in spoilerific, spoileridgy sort of ways. Uh, Miss Alexandra Bohannon, uh, what say you? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Why does it work? And maybe a reason or two why. Well, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was kind of refreshing to have a uh, stronger female lead. Obviously, I can't divulge too much into spoiler territory with this one, but I did enjoy that quite a bit. Um, It's kind of nice to see that after seeing so many slasher films kind of divulge into this violence against women angle that we've seen in films such as American Psycho and, you know, most other slasher films of their ilk. Tatum, just get in the car. Hello, Sydney. Uh, hi. Who is this? You tell me. Well, I, I have no idea. Scary night, isn't it? With the murders and all, it's like right out of a horror movie or something. <laughs> Randy, you gave yourself away. Are you calling from work because Tatum's on her way over? Do you like scary movies, Sydney? I like that thing you're doing with your voice, Randy. It's sexy. What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, come on. You know I don't watch that shit. Why not? Too scared? No. No, it's just, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. I thought that it was really engrossing. I thought that the shift from the first act to the second act, which... If you watch this movie or if you've seen this movie, it's a very, very apparent. But I thought that was really, really well done, and it, it, it still kept me engaged and fired along for the ride. Um, I did have some, you know, plausibility issues, especially with the ending. I'm like, hmm, not sure if that credit sequence really is 
accurate considering like the evidence that's strewn about and why is that considered that that's a fair point fair point um if you know if you know the movie seen the movie dear listener you'll definitely know what we're talking about but um i still enjoyed it and even if i had some moments where i had to suspend my disbelief even though it is admittedly a horror movie and you're supposed to do that the whole time i I still enjoyed it, and it was probably the most fun I've had during this Shocktober, definitely. And I would give it a, a thorough two thumbs up and a solid recommendation to anyone who wants to have fun on Netflix on a rainy day, maybe. Thank you very much, Miss <laughs> Alexandra Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you, sir? I really like this movie. Um, I actually, a, a rarity for me, listener, I, I watched the film twice uh, prior to us recording, which is not something I typically do. And I'm glad I did, honestly. It is not something he typically does. No, I no. don't rewatch movies. I haven't seen your next since I saw it in the cinemas. Uh, With even, me. That is correct. Uh, despite the fact that I've been wanting to rewatch it, and it's been on Netflix for like a year now. Um, I, I like your next so much. Um, it's really just sly. And that's the word, the best adjective that comes to mind for me. Because it's not like your typical uh, funny horror movie. It's not a, a horror comedy proper uh, but it has got such a dark, dark sense of humor to it. Uh, but it's not doing it in a winking fashion uh, that um, Scream is doing. Uh, or even uh, Cabin in the Woods, which I don't think does its humor in a winking fashion. I think it does it in just a straight-up humor fashion. Uh, but more than, or rather I should say, uh, differently than those films, the way Your Next approaches its humor is if you are not a deeply depraved person... Uh, or someone who's seen a lot of horror movies, you're probably not going to laugh. I, I don't think Oops. a lot of... Yeah, <laughs> I feel exactly. so guilty all of a sudden. Exactly, you should. Uh, you know what I mean, though? I don't, I don't think a lot of your general audiences are going to um, be as amused by this as your horror buffs and your general film buffs. Um, that's just my opinion. I could be totally off base here. But I, I think the way it plays its jokes uh, are very coy. Uh, and very sly, and it's not winking at you at all. Um, and, well, let me rephrase that. It's winking at you, but kind of out of the corner of its eye, um, rather than a full-on, like, huh? tips the sunglasses, winks over them, it, much in the fashion that uh, Wes Craven's scream does. He's winking a lot, if you can't tell from the sound of his voice. Being that this is a auditory, not visual medium, I think we need to tell him again that this is radio, not TV. I but don't know. I think that the listener by now should know from Dalton's voice, vocal tone when he's winking at them because, I don't know, I think I can. You can feel my wink in your nether region. The truth is, dear listener, Dalton's always winking at us. <laughs> and I am always rolling my eyes at him. <laughs> Excuse me what, for this exaggerated eye roll. Oh, oh brother. brother. <laughs> um, but but to put a pin in it, I, I do enjoy this film quite a bit. It's well shot. It's well paced. It's interesting. It's tense. It's thrilling. It's funny. I give it four and a half broken blenders and two and a half cold pots of soup out of a possible 17 kitchen appliances. I'm bad at math. <laughs> He likes it more than that, I think, dear listener. But, yeah, again, the math. But thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, Miss Kirsten Thurkelson, what say you? I don't know what it says about me that I laughed heartily at this film, both the first and second time I saw it. Uh, I love this movie. Um, I think that the people who hated this movie 
came to see a home invasion slasher flick, and that's not, I mean, that's... They came to see The Strangers. Exactly. I mean, or or Funny Games or any number of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just not quite what it was uh, played up to be. Um, I think that it is very smart. I think that the pacing and the dramatic tension are all very well done. I also think that it had, I mean, just fantastic acting and just the right amount of gore. Um, but I have seen a lot of movies like this. It might, it's probably too much gore for some people's taste. Uh, I actually give it five out of five screwdrivers to the gut. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Thurkelson. I, again, I agree all heartily with my dear co-hosts. I like this movie a whole lot. It's a, it's a fun movie. And clearly, I'm a monster. Because I keep laughing at this movie. Uh, it, it's, it's not a horror comedy. And yet we laugh and we laugh and we laugh and we laugh. Partly because um, Mr. Wingard has given us some brilliant dialogue. And that's really what I want to say that's excellent about this movie. There, there are other things that I'll say later when we get into analysis. But right now I want to say it is just a very, very well-written film. Uh, plot-wise and in plotment, I think also it is definitely well-written. Alex uh, mentioned that there are some holes in said plotting. But uh, in, in the oniric experience that we are going through as we watch the film, uh, those things tend to wash away. You know, Alfred Hitchcock used to say things about the plausibles, those people who would make those arguments against plausibility for his film and they're clearly missing the point but in writing especially when we're dealing with dialogue this film is uh, it sparkles it shines absolutely it, it, it is a flare in the in the in the lights of, of american cinema and i really wish we had more movies like it so i i like it very very much i give it uh i don't know eight and a half uh meat tenderizers to the head out of a possible nine Dustin, you, you mentioned that uh, you wish that we had more movies like this. Uh, I learned something interesting. A- as the listener uh, is probably aware, there is a genre of indie film uh, referred to as mumblecore. Joe Swanberg, who plays Drake, is a, is a pretty prominent mumblecore director. Uh, one of his more recent films, Drinking Buddies, is on Netflix now. It's probably one of his more ho- high-profile films, uh, mostly because of the cast. Uh Adam Wingard and Ty West, who uh, we love on this show, uh, who appears as Tariq, um, are part of a subgenre that is called often called mumble gore. Yeah, I love me some mumble gore. Yeah, I'm in. I, I love, by the way, I, I can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet, the dinner scene where Tariq and Drake are talking about uh, film, and it's so fucking funny. It's so self-referential. It's, it, it, it is almost uh, too self-indulgent, and I love it anyway. <laughs> Because you have Joe Swanberg talking to Ty West about how commercials are the height of the art form, and it's fucking brilliant. You might want to explain the joke for listeners who might not be on their mumble gore personalities. Alex, at, well, and, I, and that was why I, I led this off with that, um, explaining that. Uh, Joe Swanberg, who plays Drake, uh, directs a lot of indie films. Uh, Drinking Buddies, like I said, is, is one of his more recent ones. It's mumble core, a listener, um, is a genre of indie film that I really think can probably trace its roots back to Clerks um, in that they're films about, you know, maladjusted or stuck in a rut, 20 to 30-somethings who haven't really figured things out, and the movies are essentially about nothing, um, and the the dialogue is often heavily improvised. Um, The Duplass brothers uh, do a lot of these films. uh, Mark Duplass, and I can't for the life of me remember his brother's name for some reason. Um, 
Another reference to keep in mind is uh, Lena Dunham in uh, Tiny Furniture. Yeah, well, and Lena Dunham showing up in uh, Ty West's The Innkeepers. Yes. Um, and also... As the barista, if you're watching, dear listener. And I can't for the life of me remember her name, but she directed um, your sister's sister, uh, Lynn Sheldon, I want to say is her name, but for some reason it's escaping me at the moment. She did uh, Your Sister's Sister with Mark Duplass and um, other things. But that's that's Mumblecore listener, and Mumblecore is the same type of film, but in a horror genre, which is what we get out of Ty West's The House of the Devil and The Innkeepers, etc. Scary versions of 20-somethings who are shiftless and without rudders and somehow stuck in a rut. And thank you very much, dear co-hosts, for all of that uh, excellent, excellent review. We now move on to what this show is all about, and we move on to bring some analysis to what we're experiencing right here. I ask you first, Miss Kirsten Thurkelson, what say you? So uh, I took way, I took infinitely more notes on this movie than I did on the Blair Witch Project. So I'm just I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to not uh, bore everyone and wax poetic for too long. Um, so it's really difficult, actually. I, f- I found uh, to be very singular in analyzing this movie. Um, at first, I thought about looking at it uh, going the route of, of class war- warfare uh, and having like. Oh, it's totally there. The 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 proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. um, With I mean, Aaron obviously being Mm. the the hero of the film. Um, But they're not particularly. I didn't think that they they played her up that way so much. Um, Yeah, it's. I mean, it's touched on, but it's not absolutely. And it's not. They didn't want that. I I don't think that they wanted that to be the full focus of the film because drop line of dinner with fascists, (laughs) etc. These people are very obviously, uh, they're an incredibly waspy family. Um, the waspiest. The, the, wa- the waspiest of the wasps. Um, but really, I mean, they're, for the most part, they're okay people, as long as you're not, you know, looking at <laughs> Felix, you fucking lowlife, <laughs> um, and Crispin. Uh, so I ended up kind of going a different direction. Um, what we end up with instead is more of a, a battle of, of power dynamics, um, ultimately leading us to the conclusion that money is not power. Power is power. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. So the name of the game is Survival, and we find out over the course of the movie that Erin has been training for this game literally her entire life, uh, which is actually, they I, I didn't catch this the first time I saw this movie, but they allude to briefly in kind of a throwaway conversation uh, where the brothers of the family are going, hey, have you ever seen a, you ever seen a kangaroo fight man? And they're, they're punching each other and as kind of a joke. Um, but it ends up being... Kind of a thesis statement for the film because I mean Aaron is Aaron is she's Australian. from Australia yeah which Drake's fi- wife finds very grating and fun fact actually Aaron's character and Z's character are roommates and they're both from Great Britain really wait in in real life in real life that oh. is delightful they are friends and roommates and they both got the roles together and they're both British that is adorable playing Australians and Americans respectively that is fantastic. Um... But so I wanted I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, Aaron as our hero, um, not necessarily the oh, she's proletariat. My hero. <laughs> not necessarily the proletariat rising up. Um, she's certainly an action hero girl. Uh, 
Um, but she actually doesn't fulfill the role of hero so much because she doesn't save anyone. In, at the end of the day, she doesn't save anyone but herself. And, I mean, you can make an argument either way for whether or not she successfully even does that. Mm. Um, she's more of a hero of justice. Uh, she prevents the villains from succeeding in their plan and ultimately ensures they all die the same violent deaths that they inflict. Uh, while the choice of a lady as the hero, and I mean, it obviously could have been... It, it could have easily been male. It could have easily been female. It doesn't really make a huge... It could have easily been Tariq. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> They killed the closest thing they had to a black guy off in the oh. <laughs> very first thing. Uh, you say that, and I have to say, when I watch this movie, every time I watch this movie, all I can think about when I think about Tariq is Caleb Vesley. Oh, and, my God. And... Uh... And... It, <laughs> The reference is there. Caleb is a regular listener to the show and a filmmaker himself. And uh, I, I, I think of him crawling under the table being asked those sort of questions. And I just – there's no place I could really have inserted that other than right now. So I'm sorry for interrupting. No, it's fine. However, while we're on a Tariq detour, I do want to take a moment to mention something I forgot to mention, which is how great that reveal is because it drags that tension out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is – Yeah, it does. But, I mean, that is our really – Kind of the start of the movie proper, in a sense. And it, in a, any other film, we would have cut very quickly to Aaron seeing the arrow in his head. But instead, we see the glass on the floor. And then we see the broken window. And then we see everyone's reaction. And then we see Tariq. I am in love with the pacing of this film. Absolutely. Yes. But continue, Kirsten. We're sorry. So the choice of having um, a female as the hero is clearly intentional, but less so from a perspective of feminism as so much as the idea of turning the trope of final girl on its head. This movie is for people who have seen slasher movies and who know the rules, um, but she's not an innocent. Uh, and prior to the audience knowledge of her background of being raised on some crazy survivalist compound, she's kind of set up as an everyman for its audience. Uh, so, like, high school to 20-something students. Uh, they reference how much debt she's in and everything mm. of, as, a, yeah, as a result of her education. Um, so, Erin, for all of her efforts, saves no one but herself uh, and ultimately allows her violent instincts to take the lives of not only the literal attackers, uh, the masked, quote-unquote, animals, but also the unmasked yet hidden masterminds behind the attack, Crispin Felix Z. Um, so in the end, this movie is all about power, and it's all about uh, subversion of ideas that we have about it. Um, Felix and Crispin obviously believe this, because rather than committing any of these atrocities themselves, they hire their ex-military buddies to violently kill every single person in this family, uh, with Crispin even giving the whole great line of, Come on, man. You know I can't do this. I'm a pacifist. Hmm. Can't handle all that blood. And it's a great counterpoint to the uh, comment made about the uh, you know the father who is a uh, you know a, a military contractor mm-hmm. who's hiring out all the labor to repair the house. And so this yeah I I, I anyway just want to point well, out where is their gun safe? Exactly. I'm just tossing Why that. Why these in? rich white fuckers <laughs> not own a goddamn they shotgun? Any, they don't have in any their guns. summer home or whatever. Exactly. Let's yeah. well, because it's in their summer home. Well, to bring it, Kirsten, I, I mean, I, I think you're you're spot on because even in the film, Sheet Mask, um, you know, puts Felix to the wall and says, "I'm trying to think of reasons not to kill you," mm-hmm. and he could have. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and then at the end, Aaron's uh, or Crispin says why, and Aaron says why the fuck? Why not? the fuck not? Exactly. Yeah, but uh, ultimately, money is not power. Power is power, and Aaron proves that she has more than the animals and their respective puppet masters combined. So. Excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Thurgelson. That is that is an excellent reading, and I was thinking all those sort of feminist final girl sort of thoughts, and I was hoping someone of the two ladies that we have here tonight would take on that um, particular issue, uh, and, and not myself because I don't feel quite qualified. Uh, Kirsten, who is uh, a new listener, but also a rabid listener, pointed out to me recently that prior to Alex joining the show, I was the voice of feminism, which is really disturbing. <laughs> I, I generally tended to avoid it because of qualification purposes. Yeah. I, I'm learning more and more that it's okay to go ahead and be in that place, and I'm, I'm glad to be taking a class about um, race and uh, surveillance uh, the next semester at, at the um, Oklahoma State University for my PhD program, but none more about that right now. We've got other things to talk about. Mr. Dalton Stewart, I'm sure you have many things to talk about. What would you say about this film? Well, uh, I'm going to start talking about one thing, and it's going to make me talk about something else, so hang tight. Uh, I know I do that sometimes. Or all the time. Yeah, well, sometimes you got to tell one story to tell another story. So... Frequent listeners of this show should be familiar by now with the concept of social systems uh, and agents of socialization. Uh, I'll give you the quick log line real fast, though. Uh, social systems are, are those systems that have been put in place and have become kind of <clears throat> permanent fixtures in society, uh, media, religion, family, etc. Agents of socialization uh, often overlap. It's a pretty <clears throat> similar Venn diagram. Um, your agents of socialization uh, falling into primary and secondary categories. Your primary categories being the family um, and close personal friends and secondary ones being religion and the media. Um, but I don't think there is anything more important when we think about um, in sociology, one of the, the through lines, uh, particularly in fields of sociology and sociological paradigms that focus on uh, interpersonal interaction uh, and focus on how we become who we are versus kind of large-scale financial uh, and political issues. Uh, I think time and time again you will find that the one place uh, sociologists manage to actually agree is that the family is infinitely important in, in the formation of, of both uh, the self in, a, in an individual and in society as a whole. You, you see these reflections of society. I mean, there's, there's a reason... Uh, we talk about the patriarchy so much because this formation of the family has seeped its way into um, the way we choose to run our society. So if we accept that the family is kind of all important, uh, both to us personally and on a more macro level to us as a society, um, I think it's equally important we point out what families fight about, what breaks up families. Uh, and time and time again, uh, study after study, you will find that the thing that kills relationships, kills marriages, ruins family relationships is money. It always comes back to money. The number one answer for what did you fight the most about to divorce couples is money. 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about money and fighting amongst uh, married couples. So absolutely, you're right on. So what is it about money that has this sway over the thing we find so important, uh, both in our own personal lives and as a society? Why do we let money have this power over us? Um, there is a, uh, a Bible verse, and I'm sure Dustin can attest to this, that is often misquoted as money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It is not what it says. The love of money is the root of all evil. And what we see here is Crispin and Felix and their desire to have more, to not be satiated by their fucking bougie, waspy, fellowship-seeking, dick-nozzle existence. They have to have more. How much more? They want all of it. Which and it literally kills their family. Which bespeaks to your religious stripe. If your pursuit of the love of that particular sort of financing, you are not behaving in a Christian manner. I'm just saying, and you should repent. Okay, I'm done. Preacher, Crushing it. Preacher's done. I was pointing out to Dalton after we watched the film that the title definitely has a double meaning. You have your next, which means, oh, guess what? I'm going to kill you next. And there's also the issue of your next in line to receive the inheritance. Absolutely. Ding. And I, I, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that Alex uh, pointed out that double meaning that I never occurred to me had a lot to do with my analysis because she's absolutely right. At the end of the day, that's what your next is about. So to put a pin in it, listener, there's a good chance you're going to have to choose at some point in your life what is more important to you, the people around you, the people that give your life meaning, the people that give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning or your fucking wallet. Choose wisely. Uh, you know, I've never said this on the show, but preach, brother. And uh, that makes me very happy to hear every word of that. Uh, Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what analysis bring you? Well, I was thinking this is kind of similar to what I think Dalton was saying, but I think it might take it a step further in the analysis I think I can take a lot of bits and pieces from the readings that were both presented before mine and kind of um, make them together, mesh them together um, what we have is this kind of subversion of power and, and we're always asking the question about what happens when the family structure is turned on its head because throughout the whole movie we have these inner family dynamics we have this kind of slightly heebie-jeebie references to, well, the professor is now totally dating or boning his student with it either being the next-door neighbor or being the brother Crispin. We have, of course, brother killing brother sequences directly or indirectly. And then, of course, the ever-quotable the fuck-me-next-to-your-dead-mom sequence. So... Whenever all these subversions happen, whenever the family is destroyed through, you know, the, the love of money and he heroes and heroines have to rise up to thwart this power, I feel like this is a rather kind of catastrophic happening. And catastrophic in terms of the biblical sense that we have once referred to, um, not a po post-apocalyptic, see 
uh, stake land, dear listener, if you want to hear those differentiations, because they do exist. But I would say that, from what I recall of the book of Revelations, there is that segment, and remind me if I'm misquoting, because I totally am, the brother turned against brother, father against son, that's the kind of things that happen. It's actually Matthew chapter 25. Thank but, you. But it, it, it's, it's apocalyptic literature, so you're right on. Okay, good. I'm, see, I knew it was tied to the apocalypse for some reason. Do you, have, do you remember the full-ish general it, it, concept it, it, of that? It's a general prediction of uh, wars and rumors of wars and uh, people being turned against one another. And uh, head for the hills and pray you're not pregnant when you're heading for the hills. Because it's harder to go the hills when one is pregnant. Yeah, that would be a thing, definitely. But what the main thing I wanted to take from that is that even in the Bible, even in these you know, catastrophic predictions, we have the family structure. It, when As soon as that collapses, you know that everyone is totally screwed. And the only way that this can be solved, which is demonstrated in these catastrophic films, the apocalyptic literature, is the basically the purging of all of this kind of mutation of the family structure. So the only way to get rid of, you know, these nasty, nasty overtones is to just wipe it clean, which is kind of what happens whenever you have, like, situations i think to you know cider house rules sorry to spoil that film for your dear listener if you haven't heard it but you know the the woman who becomes impregnated by her own father you know the and you know the fact that she is having a person who was unwilling to perform an abortion then becomes willing to perform an abortion in the instance of incest the only way to kind of get rid of have you never seen that movie? I clearly need to see this movie. Yeah. That, I watched that when I was 12 years old, and it drastically changed my life view. <laughs> I imagine it might. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know what a 34-year-old man will do, but yeah. yes, that I, I do want to check that out. I never know what a 34-year-old man is going to do. <laughs> but it, it definitely reminds me of those situations, that the only way to kind of get rid of this dire and, you know, devious mutation of the family structure is to kill it, purge it with fire, and get rid of it. And, you know, we have this outsider that does exactly that, a kind of, you know, take it a little far to say a messiah figure that purges the world clean, and, you know, there's nobody left to speak for the horrors and atrocities that were committed there. Only her, who now, unfortunately, is left holding the bag and dealing with that for the rest of her life. Although, the only person that saw her there holding the bag catches an axe to the chest. So... Is it his chest? I thought it was his face. Yeah, you know, six of one half. I tell you what, gang, I really want to see the sequel that opens up with, so let me tell you what happened. (laughs) (laughs) With, uh, with, uh, uh... Aaron? With Aaron telling us uh, in some sort of interrogation room, I'm imagining what's a, going on. I'm ima- Isn't that Aliens the movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm imagining a, uh, a and then there were none type scenario where the detectives show up and are just like, "What the shit happened?" Yeah, there there is no figuring out that crime scene. No. Well, there's a really fun movie to watch though. 
there's a reading of this where she, I mean, bleeds to death on the ground because yeah. of her shoulder wound, and there's just a house full of bodies, and, and no, no one, one knows what's no happening. Knows. And so the post credit sequence isn't really a thing. No, I think it's just a, I think it's just a cute way to to give the cast a Show high the five for being yeah. so game. Yeah. Cool. Totally agree. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. I'm going to go very in a awesome. very different direction. I'm so grateful. I cannot tell you, dear co-hosts, how lucky I am to be in the room with you all. Oh. And uh, because I, I was thinking strands of analysis that could be applied to this film, and I thought, well, there's that, and that's sort of there, and, and there's this, and this sort of there, and there's that. And, and all three of you have picked up all three threads that I thought were already there, and I thought, man, I really want someone else to say those things. So well done, dear co-hosts. I, I thought those readings were, were there and needed to be said and needed to not be said by me. And so that's what I wanted to, what, what I wanted to have happen. So I'm very grateful uh, for that. And so I'm going to do something we rarely do on the show. And I want to do something a little different. And that, that's really why I'm glad of doing the different thing because it's less um, engaged in sort of cultural events and the here and now and more about how this gets to the here and now. In, in that I want to talk a little bit about um, structuralism and formalism in this film, and I want to talk about the score specifically, of, about how it's put together, and how the things that my dear co-hosts have already said are, are made effective by the use of music in the film. And, and so what you see in this film is, is really a score that is not a wall-to-wall score. It's not a John Williams-esque sort of score where there's always at least a softly playing violin in the background uh, at minimum. And then, and then the French horns uh, come in as we feel you know, moments of either rapture or romance or threat or peril or whatever. Dial it down a bit, John. Because John likes to tell you how to feel. But uh, we're not talking about John Williams right now. The score in this film it, it is a great example of shifts between atonality and melodic tonality. Now stay with me. So what I want to talk about is, is how when mystery is revealed, but the score in this film is all about revelation because in following classical Hollywood cinema, it's all about revealing what's going on, the continuity editing of the film in order that you know what's happening and what has happened and perhaps some ideas of what may or may not happen next in that which character may be next and you might pick who's next and in your next ding and, and what we have here and I, i'm really cribbing a bit from um some reading from claudia gordman in uh her article um which is actually a chapter from her book hollywood melodies the chapter i'm thinking about is classical hollywood practice uh in in regard to these melodies and and what the what the scoring does of course it does all the typical sort of scoring things uh the the louder crashes or the strings that um again atonally even though there is a, obviously a tone and a note signature for these things, but they're not mel melodic. Uh, and they give you this indi indication of tension, and then suddenly we see wolf face under the bed. And then uh, we see uh, sort of the droning uh, sound, and then it cuts off as the door slams shut, which is sort of an example of what they call Mickey Mousing. And Mickey Mousing is basically when you hear the plucking of violins and cellos uh, in harmony, and you hear the footsteps of Mickey Mouse. And, 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 and that, those sort of Mickey Mousing sort of things happen throughout the film. But the film makes this great um, use of mo melodic sounds in combination with what's diegetic and what's non-diegetic. 
So the song Looking, Looking for, for the, the magic. magic happens repeatedly throughout the film, but there are other diegetic bits of music that are used throughout. And it was fascinating to me as I was watching this film, and I actually did a weird experiment as I noticed this as I watched the film or rewatched the film for the purpose of this podcast. Um, this is... I don't know if it's a dare or not. I don't know if it's a thing that you ought to practice or not. But what I did is I played it on my iPhone, and then I put my iPhone in my back pocket with headphones on. And I didn't look at the movie at all, and I just listened to it while I watched it. So I double-dog dare you to maybe think about doing that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird thing. But what was weird is that it's atonal, it's not melodic, and it's never diegetic when mystery is revealed. So we have high strings, atonal droning of either French horns or of just sort of a synth bass sound or a synth piano sound, and then suddenly out comes one of the killers. Well, that, that synth piano, um, that, that reoccurring score we get towards that last third of the film. Which is, is melodic. Yes, is, is typically when Aaron's about to do something badass. That Which is revelatory in a different way. It's not revelatory of mystery, it's revelatory of information. Well, I was I was thinking more of a like a revelatory of a personal strengthy type thing. Correct. And so I mean actually you're absolutely right on to what I'm talking about. Because it's revelatory of mystery in that you don't know who this killer is. You don't know who Fox Face or Wolf Face or whatever the Fox Face. Fox Face. There's Tiger Face and Lamb or Sheep Face. Tiger Face. Sheep Face or Lamb Face. I think Sheep I, think it, I, was, I thought it was sheep. I think I was saying sheep a lot and then was like, oh, it's lamb. Quick, quick poll. Which is scarier, tiger, fox, or lamb? Oh, fox face for sure. Fox. I, I, say, I say lamb face. I was going to say lamb face too yeah. because it's fox the most face, meek of the he, Here's animals. why fox face is scariest. When fox face takes off his mask, he still looks creepy <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Lamb face has got the, like, the baklava over his face. And, it, and then the crazy eyes. <laughs> he said baklava. He does have crazy baklava. eyes. Baklava. That's what I, I meant. I wish he had baklava on his face. Baklava? I, I wish baklava. I had baklava on my face. I love but baklava. See, when, when he lips... <laughs> when, I'm excited about that. When Fox face lips up his mask, takes out his earbud and says, were you saying something? He just sounds like Buffalo Bill, but like more redneck and more on heroin. Who's behind the door? Fox face. Is Foxface behind Fox the door? Yeah. That's such a great reveal. Yeah. Yes, it is. Because then they, they he's obscured by the door, and then when you close the door again, it's Felix standing there. It's so perfect. But the anyway. fact that you had to ask, ask that question, see, that particular moment is cued by that atonal bit of music. And so it is revealing of mystery. Throughout the film, mystery is being revealed by atonality. Anytime there's a melodic tonality, Either diegetically or non-diegetically, with the exception of this this, this reveal when Aaron uh, reveals that she is a bad woman and you do not want to jack with her with the uh, with the uh, progressive um, uh, delay pedal. Go ahead. Uh, just a reminder to the listeners: uh, diegetic music is is music that the people in the movie can hear. Essentially, things on the radio, etc. Non-diegetic is the score uh, or things that only the the audience is hearing. It, 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 Nuts and bolts terms. However, every time in the film when diegetic music occurs, which the characters can't hear, there's non-diegetic music, which, again, reveals mystery and there's threat and there's peril and those sort of things. Every time diegetic music is revealed, suddenly the guy who had this very sort of angry sex uh, with his uh, 
uh, college uh, uh, live-in or whatever the situation uh, happens to be. Then we have diegetic music being played. When Kelly runs to the room and realizes that he's dead, diegetic music is being played. When we finally find out that Felix and Kelly are in on it, we hear a moment of the music from the earbuds of Foxface, and diegetic music is being revealed, which again is tonal music. When we finally figure out, when rather Aaron figures out that Felix and Aaron, or Felix and Z, are in on the killing, there's a bit of diegetic music from her phone, which also, um, you know, is again, it's tonal, it's not atonal. And then when we begin to understand just how recognizably awesome she is, there is that bit of scoring, which is non diegetic, but yet it's melodic. And it reveals that she is amazing and awesome and really able to mess people up. And that's also tied into a bit of recognizable cueage, which happens when uh, Lambface throws Kelly back through the window and we hear alarms going off. There's not really so much melodic music as much as his recognizable music, which again, Gorbin speaks about quite a lot about the recognizability of the use of score. And so I'm talking about score, but I'm also talking about a bit of sound design. But the, the way this film works is that when the music comes in because most of the film is actually soundless outside of just the events and the crushing and the and the squelching of flesh and squelching flesh is the caption for when uh, Felix stabs Drake it says flesh squelching bless and, you Netflix and it says it once more later on and I was just like man squelching flesh would be a sick ass metal band <laughs> absolutely it's the name of my band in fact um, but but that being said uh, every time this film is trying to reveal what's going on in a way that you understand characters better or understand characters in a deeper way it uses melody and typically diegetic music, though not always. And when it's trying to reveal more mystery, it's trying to get you more intrigued, it uses atonal or percussive music to reveal that. Well, Dustin, I think you're selling yourself short on in that you missed one um, in the sound design, kind of one of those incidental, accidental scores, rather, I should say, the, the use of sound design to create its own score. When uh, Aaron sets up the camera to repeatedly flash yeah, on Foxface, and it's it's creating score through the use of sound design and through sound effect, and it is literally it is atonal and literally in the course of the film is obscuring Foxface's vision. That's an excellent point. All I could think about when I was watching that, that I love that point so much, Dalton. All I could think about was when the guy who is obviously a clone of David O. Selznick because Hitchcock hated him so much <laughs> is is walking into the room and Jimmy Stewart is using the flashbulb to slow him down because he can't run away because of his broken leg. That's all I thought about when all, I watched that scene. All I could think about was Nick Cage in Kick-Ass yelling, Robin's Revenge! To Chloe Grace Moritz and she turns a strobe line on her pistol. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you very much, dear co-host. Dear listener, I think you have some food or thought when it comes to this particular film i it may perhaps belong on a film studies syllabus but moving right along uh, we'd love to hear more about what you think about what we've said so far and we'll give you an opportunity to do that in the feedback section what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things i have ever heard at no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. 
But now we must move on to our verdict where we say shelf or trash, and we offer our else's or instead's. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? I'm going to say shelf. I think Dustin hit the nail right on the head. We need more horror films like this. Uh, just like we said when we watched The House of the Devil for the show, we need more aggressive, um, in-your-face, interested, thoughtful, curious horror films that actually want to say something. Um, and I think um, by this, by the time you hear this listener, you will have um, hopefully heard, but we definitely will have recorded our live show uh, at the Paramount Theater with Nick Sanford. And Tempest Fugit is a film that's a horror film but actually has a soul and has a thought and has interest in something. And I agree with Dustin. We need more horror films like this. And I'm so glad uh, at, as Shocktober rolls into the station, this is one of the films we decided to do because we were going to do Scream uh, and we ended up doing Your Next instead for our, our kind of meta horror film for this year. And I'm glad that was the choice we made because I agree with what Dustin said about more films like this. In terms of recommended else viewing with your next, uh, I'm definitely going to say Funny Games, uh, the Michael Hanukkah film. Uh, ah, um, you son of a bitch. Sorry. I've only seen, Kirsten did name check this earlier, I should point out. Um, obviously, I've only seen the American uh, remake because I'm a plebeian. Um, the, the one with Naomi Watts and uh, Tim Roth and, uh, so Mike, good, and Michael Pitt. Uh, because it does a lot, one, it is a home invasion thriller, and two, it's it's much more meta than Year Next is uh, because it is actively saying things about violence in the media, whereas Year Next is just saying things about uh, horror tropes. Um, but man, that's a hell of a movie, and uh, it hates you. It's a movie that hates you. That would make for the most stressful double feature Ugh. ever. Awful. I don't recommend it. No. <laughs> I uh, am also going to say you should pair it with the Coen Brothers film Fargo because it's all about a powerful woman uh, descending into the depravity that can be, be that can be caused by greed, uh, and I think it's really all wonderfully summed up by uh, Francis McDormand's line, to "Line all this for money," um, which just is a great capstone at the end of that, that film. Uh, I'm also going to recommend pretty much exclusively because Kirsten name checked uh, or, or rather quote checked. House of Cards. I'm going to say you should check out American Beauty um, because it is a lot of that deconstruction uh, of, of the white American family. Uh, and I know it's really popular to, to talk shit on American Beauty now and say, oh, I liked it better when it was called Ordinary People. Well, fuck you. Uh, American Beauty's good, and I'll fight you over it. Uh, finally, I'm going to recommend a, another horror film that does a lot of cool things with score and sound design, and that is Sinister, which uses a lot of the actual sound design. Now I hate you, too. Which is a film that uses a lot of its uh, sound design, uh, such as the flickering of the 8mm film, to add to the score, uh, which is, by the way, a really cool dubstep score, which is just an interesting choice. And those are my else picks. Excellent. Well, Thank well. you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Quickly, Miss Kirsten Thurgolston, before Dalton or Alex rip any more of our picks off, go. I would like to start off uh, by saying I would absolutely shelf this film. Uh, it's hard to find, though. I would personally have it on my shelf, um, but it's a little, it's a little, a little difficult. Um, I think it's an absolutely fantastic movie. I was a little worried on rewatching it whether or not it would still have the same viewing value after you know what sort of twists are coming ahead. Um, and I was not disappointed in the least. I, I would, would. I want to point out that uh, when Alex and I watched it, she called 
every twist. Really? Real, real early. And, and, and she enjoyed it. So, I, you know, I don't think your mileage is going to uh, vary with this one. I think it's still good, even if you can see everything that's coming. I think it's definitely still a, a shelfable movie. One of the key indita- indicators of a good movie versus a bad movie, if the only thing that makes it good is the twist, and once you know the twist, it's no Absolutely. longer enjoyable, then it's not really a good movie. It's just a good twist. That's Absolutely. called That's called burying the lead, and it's bullshit. It might be called The Sixth Sense. I don't know. Hey, Totally, totally, <laughs> totally obvious when you know what's going on. I couldn't disagree more, though. I think it's still a good movie. Uh, I watched it when I was 10. I can't really remember much I, about it. <laughs> I think that's the key. I think when the twist is obvious, when you know what the twist is, that's a good twist. I think if there's no way any human being could possibly figure that twist out, it's a, it's a bullshit cheap twist, much like in The Usual Suspects, which I still think is a good film. Fair point. I don't try to destroy Dalton. I don't try. I don't try to uh, to destroy uh, happiness and constantly figure out twists for myself. So I uh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, I do that. Thank you. Um. Anyway, I say this is definitely a shelfable film. Uh, else, um, I would say I'm going to go ahead and recommend Death Proof. Uh, which is one half of the Grindhouse, Grindhouse. Grindhouse uh, Tarantino Rodriguez double feature. Partially because it features another awesome Aussie, uh, Zoe Bell, Zoe Bell, and also that it features the victim getting the best of her, or in this case, their attacker. It is interesting to point out that Aaron has the highest body count of the film. She is so good at killing people. Which is kind of weird. She doesn't even stop when she can. She has no good reason to off Crispin at the very end. It's just, why the fuck not? I stuck a blender in his head and killed him. (laughs) Oh. Okay. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, Where's Z? Killed her, too. (laughs) So so just kind of like... So nonchalant. I'm Australian and nonchalant. It's hilarious. <laughs> and also a killing machine. Much like koala bears. <laughs> Is that true? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I believe koala bears sleep 20 hours out of the day. Correct. Koala bears are also not bears. Fun fact. Um, at least you learned something today. Another else that I'm going to go ahead and recommend, Drag Me to Hell. Um because it is also a little bit more uh, postmodern style, self-aware uh, horror um, that still succeeds ultimately in being sort of a member of the gypsy curse genre that it loving that it lovingly parodies, and it certainly makes for a less dub- a less stressful double feature than than Funny Games or Death Proof. Um, alternatively. Cabin in the Woods does a lot of the same sorts of postmodern self-aware things, um, and both Cabin in the Woods and Drag Me to Hell are spiritual sequels to Evil Dead, which I'm always a fan of. So, Thank you very much, Miss Thurkelson. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, shelf or trash, else or instead? Dear listener, you know my issues with horror movies. <laughs> if you haven't by now, well, then you should, you've got a lot of episodes to catch up on. That being said... 
I love this movie, and I'm not overstating this. I really love this movie. Found it refreshing to have a female lead that actually doesn't suck ass but kicks ass. And, you know, it just it just fires all my buttons, and I can deal with the ultraviolence even though I don't want to see people's meathead smoothies really anytime soon after they get blended. That being said, um, if you want to find a copy of this movie, it is on Netflix. That's how I think everyone here at this table watched it. So um, if you want to watch it again, I would suggest you watching there or just pick it up on your pick it up at your local movie provider or Amazon.com. That being said, I will be the girl that gives you non-horror movie recommendations for pairings with this film. I felt that Home Alone and its numerous yes, sequels bless you. Absolutely. would pair well with this film. I don't know what she would watch first in a double feature, but I feel like... <laughs> Both simultaneously, absolutely, on two screens. That's the best so day much. ever. I love this so much. Sorry. Home Alone. People get clubbed in the face in Home Alone, and there are lots of traps that would cause lots of pain if it were a horror movie, but it's not, so we laugh at them, uh, but they would also hurt. I would also say... <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was the assiest description ever. <laughs> uh, 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 normal uh, human beings feel pain. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm just going to grow my neck beard right now, okay? Bless you. <laughs> okay. Um, for another se- uh, set of sequels, I think that would pair well with this film, uh, would be Alien in its various... Uh, little incarnations especially with Sigourney Weaver mm-hmm. I like that it's both a kick-ass female that the main character could have easily been cast as a male and this that all the roles could have been flip-flopped and I wouldn't have really lost anything to the movie um and I think that's really powerful to see nowadays it's nice to see it more frequently um so it, it shows that a woman can kick ass and to reiterate a point I said earlier Aliens is pretty much what happens when, you know, Aaron goes to the police station, is interrogated by the police, and is having to clean up the mess of having lots of dead people on the floor. But they're not aliens, they're just lots of dead people. (laughs) And finally, my last recommendation, a video game for all you people out there, Hotline Miami. Woo! Hotline Miami has the animal masks, it has brutal killings, and it has a kick-ass soundtrack. So... All of these things combined would make a really great pairing with this film. And Hotline Miami is definitely worth your time. Isn't that right, Dalton? You're damn right, Alex. Staying right along with the Home Alone theme, I'm also going to say Shelf, and I'm going to recommend Skyfall. And the crumble! And uh, because, again, it sort of keeps that same sort of idea. Uh, as far as, like, twisted families and uh, families you would not want to be a part of in, the, in a horror context, I want to recommend We Are, We Are, which is directed by the same director of the film Stakeland that we reviewed uh, just a few weeks ago. The, the American remake, obviously. The American remake, directed by Jim Mickles. And uh, I recommend that as well. Of course, um, already mentioned... Funny Games, already mentioned Sinister, and I think all of those things apply. I'm so sorry I accidentally stole your guys' picks. No, you're not, and I don't care. It's all right. Uh, we you can still knew, be friends. You didn't accidentally steal my pick. You knew about my pick. Oh, you did. Oh, oh I forgot. That's why it came to mind. <laughs> I accidentally stole yours, though. That was just, 
I only thought of it, though, because of your analysis, so I'm a piece of shit. Dear listener, now we all know why Dalton is a bad person. But moving right along, we would love for you to participate in the conversation, perhaps to let Dalton know what he's worth. And uh, you can do that via those magical means that we all know as social media. And so first and foremost, Miss um, Alexandra Bohannon, do you know anything about those magical means of social media by which we may have a conversation? I know lots about them. Oh, no, I just closed my window. Come back. Okay, here it is. <laughs> All right, I know lots about these magical means that we have discussed. I know things about the book face, and we have lots of comments from a certain Brigham Cole who um, is mentioning, I think in part in reference to our cameos game, which was from Zombieland. He, he said Rodney Dangerfield and Little Nicky, David Bowie and Zoolander, Chris, mm. Evans, Chris Evans' cameo is Cap, as played by Loki in Thor, The Dark World, yeah. Stan Lee in Mallrats. Side note, it would have been a cop-out to actually go with his Marvel cameos, so there's that. And the what I call Anchorman Alley fight and cameo extravaganza, Brick killed a guy, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, and Tim Robbins. Woo! And wait, there's a part two to this post, dear listener, if I can just pull it up promptly. Let's see. Part two. Cannibal Corpse, Ace Ventura. David Grohl, is that it? Yes. Okay. And Foo Fighters. Yes. And yeah. Devil and Devil and Tenacious D, The Pick of Destiny. Yes. Check this riff. It's fucking tasty. <laughs> Tom Waits in The Book of Eli, Shopkeeper in The Fisher King, The Crippled Veteran. And then, just of, as an hour ago, Nick Sanford, Hey Desperately, I'm an Only Child and I Desperately Need Your Attention. This movie is pl- playing tomorrow at the Paramount OKC. It's being hosted by local podcast, Good Trash Genre Cast, where we're going to do film theory analysis. And you'll grill me in front of a, ho- a live studio audience. And he then goes on to talk about the double f- the movie we're playing tomorrow, Tempest Fugit, and um, he wants you to desperately come to that. But by the time this drops, you will not be able to come to that. So you should come anyway. It, it will be too late. You should time travel. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. Thank you again uh, for that feedback to our listener. Keep coming in with that. We'd love to hear it very much. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about social media by which we might have a conversation? Excuse me, Dustin. You say, do we have more feedback? Like, it's my fault that we don't have any. Listen, just so we're perfectly clear, I had to tweet at my own brother because you guys keep getting too many at mentions from a girl I had to tweet at my own brother more than once. You were supposed to do that. For all the good you guys did in here, you should have stayed outside with your fucking iPads. I'll handle it. Listener, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Donald Stewart. Is there any feedback coming in from the Twitsy Twitter? No, I wasn't just being clever with that. We don't have uh, too terribly much. Uh, Nick Sanford did say, if you go to this, you will get $500 worth of free gardening supplies at Good Trash and then a link to the Facebook event for the thing you already missed. To which Brigham Cole responded, I'm not falling for this again, still waiting on my year's supply of hair gel for doing the, quote, hair part challenge, which definitely sounds like a thing me and Nick would be involved in. (laughs) It does. I have followed them both on Snapchat. It's totally true. (laughs) It's out of control. The worst kind of people. 
Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Again, dear listener, you can, of course, give us uh, feedback uh, with the email address, which is goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. And we're going to make a press. Uh, We've been talking a long time about getting uh, comments on the iTunes so that we can get on sort of the new and noteworthy, the um, rising sort of popularity podcast to get us a little bit more exposure. And so what we're going to say is don't write a review this week. Actually, what we want you to do, this is episode 94, and we want you to wait between episodes 99 and 100 to go ahead and write that review, an, an honest review, five star to one star, whatever it is that you feel, but to go ahead and write that review and see if we can't uh, just drum up a sort of uh, Lollapalooza of reviews uh, from our dear listeners, uh, a review extravaganza. Review Lollapalooza. This is our equivalent to the. Uh the semi-annual National Public Radio Pledge Drive that just ended. Please give us feedback, but wait for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And do so via the iTunes. That way we can, again, raise sort of our profile and our credibility and perhaps, again, get sort of a greater audience. And that way this conversation actually does go out in further places and have uh, this great conversation about the movies with more and more people because we think that's that's why we do what we do. So with that in mind, we need to move on as the hour is growing late. I think, guys, it might be time to play the game. Greetings and welcome. I want to play a game. This week's game is our favorite movie masks. That's right. Favorite movie masks brought to you by You're Next. You're Next. When you hate your family, pay crazy people to stab them with masks. (laughs) Wait, are they stabbing them with masks? Yes. Or are they stabbing them whilst wearing masks? Both. <laughs> Ouch. Mask murdering is a whole different <laughs> thing. <laughs> Ma- mask murder. Mask murdering is different than masked murdering. It turns out there are different things. Mask. Mask murder. One of them has significantly more peripheral vision. <laughs> it's like a serial killer. Oh, my word. Well, the puns are falling fast here at Studio D, but we want to move on and go ahead and play this game in which we name our favorite cinematic masks. I ask you first, Miss Kirsten Thurkelston. So, for my favorite mask... Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, Probably my favorite cinematic mask of all time is actually stolen from a comic book. That would be the Rorschach mask just because it is both very iconic and it also tells a lot of the story about the character, which you get less so actually in the movie than you do in the in the graphic novel. Thank you. I it's lost those words. It's a very rad mask in the it's movie, It's very though. cool. It's very cool. Yeah, they, they do some really cool stuff with that special effect. And then one of the most disturbing masks I think that I've ever seen is actually the uh, pig face from Saw. Mm. I'm I'm kind of eh on the jigsaw mask, but the pig face, that's yeah. that shit's terrifying. No, thank you. Do Agreed. not want to find that in my closet. Thank you very much, Miss Thurkelston. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what say you? Well, um, we like to steal answers because I had the jigsaw mask, but, you know, I'll mention it in context with since she referenced the pig mask uh, more notably. And then also, um, kind of a little bit of a spoiler for next week, the leather face mask that is going to be coming soon to a podcasting outlet near you as we are going to do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre next week. And I have not yet seen it, 
but I know of the Leatherface's notoriety. It's a scary mask. It's a good play. Thank you very much, Miss Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your picks? Well, I'm going to start from totes bitching and work my way to absolutely horrifying. Um, first of all, Point Break, uh, which features – I'm sorry. Let me – listener, if you don't know what Point Break is, first of all, why are you listening to a movie podcast? Second of all, Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze are surfers who rob banks by skydiving. Twist, Keanu Reeves is an FBI agent. And they wear goddamned president masks, which is also totes bitching and kind of scary because one of them is wearing a Ronald Reagan mask. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's it's a masterpiece directed by Academy Award winning director Catherine Bigelow. Secondly, I'm I'm gonna do a video game pick, which we don't have to do. A terrible series of games, not mediocre series of games. Army of Two. Uh, which are kind of meh, but they have really cool masks, and I, I just find them delightful. And they always tricked me into renting uh, or buying used copies of those games and being severely disappointed. Finally, no. next, uh, I'm going to say The Mask, as in Jim Carrey's I was the wondering mask. if someone was going to do yeah, that, and I didn't want to be obvious. It's equal parts terrifying and toads bitching, because really there's a lot of horrifying subtext in that film. My vinyl pick was Leatherface's... Uh, skin mask from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, specifically uh, the last mask he wears in the original TCM. Um, man. Ooh. Wait, they change? He's got a couple. Ew. I mean, the mask is fine, but it's like kind of a cop-out or whatever, so like, I'm glad that I didn't do it, but like, I'm glad that you did it. So, Thank you very much for that, Miss Thurgleston, and also slightly less, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I Ouch. appreciate that. dick. <laughs> I appreciate. I cannot believe no one mentioned Jason Voorhees from Friday the Thirteenth. Because oh. I, I thought you were. Well, I, I wasn't. I was because I thought all of you were. Oh, and so what's um, your favorite? I intentionally avoided most slasher masks. What's your favorite Jason incarnation mask? Because his mask changes from film to film. It does. It does. I like it quite a lot in Part Four because it's got the hack mark in the side of it mm-hmm. via Part Three, and I think that's pretty fantastic. You know what my favorite is? Do tell. Uber Jason from Jason X. I You're love dead it. to me. I love it. I don't care. I love Cyborg Jason mask. Well, and honestly, that that mask isn't, wasn't even going to go ahead and make my list because, again, I thought it would be mentioned, but it, it's obviously super iconic. Uh, Michael Myers mask, super iconic. It just needs to be mentioned. Although it's a William Shatner mask, and it's sort of weird. And I even like the one the Rob mm. Zombie film, which is less Shatner-esque. Melted and spray-painted white, which is just fantastic. It, but, yeah, it's definitely super iconic. But I want to name some old-school picks um, that I think are, are, are quite uh, appropriate to what we're talking about. I want to name Lon Chaney's mask and Phantom of the Opera because absolutely iconic, absolutely um, immediately identifiable. I definitely signed that petition to save the Phantoms Theater. Oh, I, I haven't heard what's happened with that as of yet, dear listener, but do so. Universal's talking about destroying uh, the soundstage, uh, the oldest standing soundstage in the world uh, in which the Phantom of the Opera was shot. They're talking about tearing it down, and there's a petition available on the Internet. Please sign because it needs to be there because it's important. Monsters. Uh, the last one I want to mention is in George Franju's Eyes Without a Face. Uh, the uh, the face mask that the uh, young lady wears uh, throughout the film because she has no face. And uh, so you only see her eyes throughout the film. It's a 20s French film, 
and it's well worth your time. It's sort of an obscure pick, but check out a couple clips on the YouTube or find it on the Hulu because it's there and uh, take a look at that. And it's a scary movie in a great many ways. It's very similar to The Skin I Live In um, starring Antonio Banderas. I was going to say The Mask of Zorro. That's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> that is not the same that's movie a, at all. Not a mask I had that's in a, mind. That's an Almodovar movie, right? Yes. Which is really funny because he did that right after uh, I'm So Excited, which is very strange. Which is, yeah, not a good pair. That's weird. <laughs> it's a weird day. Uh, thank you very much, though, dear co-hosts, for that excellent gameplay. And uh, now it's time to move to the end of the show where we do what we always do. Where we talk about what's got us fired up in yeah. pop culture. Turn me up. And I'm hoping that the crew is all fired up today as I ask you, Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up this week in pop culture? Not really. Um, I have two kind of minor things that I kept pushing back for several weeks because better things to talk about came up. Um, I finally saw, like, the proper Jupiter Ascending trailer. That's the uh, the new film from the Wachowskis starring Channing Tatum and um, Mila Kunis, which five years ago, if you had told me the Wachowskis were directing a movie starring those two, I'd have shit my pants in rage. Uh, but now that it's 2014, I'm really excited because I like both of them. They both have really made good choices the last several years. Um, it's a heck of a trailer, and it makes me so excited uh, to see what they're going to do. I, I'm a defender of Speed Racer. I'm a defender of Cloud Atlas. I'm a defender of – well, actually, that's it. But, uh, no, I'm a, defender, I'm a defender of The Matrix Part 3. I like the Wachowskis. They do, their work is not always as good as some of their other work, but it's always as interesting as the rest of their work, and that's saying something. Nextly, I saw a trailer for uh, yet another weird career choice for Ethan Hawke. And that is a sci-fi thriller called Predestination, which is a, based on a Philip K. Dick story um, where he plays a time cop, uh, not the um, Jean-Claude Van Damme type, kind of more of a... Uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah, kind of more <laughs> of a, the Adjustment Bureau type. Although, yeah, if he was playing the Jean-Claude Van Damme type, I'd be real excited. I'd be all in. I lo- guys, I love time cop. Um, and finally, I, I didn't get to see Fury, Fury this weekend, starring uh, Brad Pitt, uh, the new film from David Ayer, whose um, end of watch we did several, several uh, episodes back. You know, he, he, uh, he writes interesting films. Let me rephrase that. He writes okay films uh, with uh, tough guys doing tough guy shit, but they say things that are really interesting and um, are, are really, I think, well flushed out. And he writes good dialogue. And that's why I wanted to see it, honestly. And I just haven't got around to it yet, but I hope to soon. And I've heard a lot of good things about it. So that's that's something I'm going to catch up on as soon as I get a chance. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart, for that fired up in this. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, are you fired up as well? I am. I finally got to see the famous, now, Fincher film, Gone Girl, this past weekend. And I saw it at the Warren. And it was really, really good. I think it'll definitely make my uh some capacity my top films of 2014 list it is expertly done left me unnerved for days after leaving the theater and um i'm really interested to see how 
Um, I'm interested to read the novel to see how stylistic choices were made because I, I think, and my mom has read the novel, that the novel does a lot more into her, her journal and um, showing things from her personal life. And there are some important plot details that emerge from that instead of being more of the smattering that we see. Um, after seeing Gone Girl, or actually during the picture before it, there was a trailer for um, Inherent Vice, which mm-hmm. is the new Joaquin Phoenix picture, which Paul I'm, Thomas Anderson. I'm very excited to see. I love seeing those kind of 70s period drama movies, a la uh. American Hustle. Yes, I love seeing those films, and they just they make me happy in in ways I can't express. So I'm I'm quite stoked to see that. And I thought, oh yes, and finally. For a bit of trivia and some information I shared on the GTGC Facebook page, the all of the information for the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them Harry Potter spinoff movies have been released. Uh, The director and the fact that it is going to be a three-part series and J.K. Rowling keeps on... Yeah, shut up, Dalton. I will not describe to the reader what he is doing right now, but let it be known that he's profane. So <laughs> I like these Wild movies. Guess. I will I'm God. so excited because these will be considered canon because of her intense involvement on the screenplay, her being JK Rowling. And she keeps on releasing cryptic clues on her Twitter account, which makes every pothead potterhead. Very happy. So um, well, I will be. It's a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap. Yeah. Um, David Yates, I think, is oh, doing Oh, David it. Yates? Yeah. Okay. Well, shit. Now I have to be interested again. Yeah. So um, they're trying to keep Karan's. I think they're going to try and keep Karan's style. And then it's set in New York. So this is going to already super, super interesting. Excellent. Okay. Uh, sorry. I'm not going to go off on Harry Potter. Uh, I'm fired yeah. about that as well. So yeah, I like that pick. Heck yeah. I, I just want to say, um, Alex, I'm really glad you're excited to see Inherent Vice. I think listeners and co-hosts, we should blow Alex's mind by making her watch There Will Be Blood in the Master back-to-back so she knows what to expect from Paul Thomas Anderson. Or still like a day and a half of her life, make her watch Magnolia too. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, I like Magnolia This sounds really fun. <laughs> we should... Yeah, okay. This I is, like those movies. This is an off-air conversation. Yeah, those are good movies. Well, thank you very much, Miss Bohannon, for that fired upness. Miss Kirsten Thurkelston, are you fired up this week? I am fired up this week. Um, I am super duper excited. They have released new ish now at this point trailers for uh, the Hunger Games. Yes. Next Hunger Games. I really like these movies. I didn't read any of the books, but the way that I kind of understand is that the books sort of dial it down as you're going forward whereas i think that the movies are going to get better and better the further we get into the universe so i would confirm this i think arthur would also echo my point that i i like the first hunger games book the best the rest kind of just like pew and you get into that a little bit whenever you have an author who was trying to make a one-off and then was sort of pressured into Ex- expanding basically because that's the, the sort of um, sales model that we're yeah, in. Yeah, right yeah. It's like we like, like this thing. Make a bunch more. Yes. See, Collins is actually has another uh, you know children's series that is very good as well. But and it is actually a series written as a series. So I wonder, I mean, if she if the Hunger Games was truly met written as a standalone, like I was just curious as to why it kind of ended up being so disjointed. 
from mm. first to sequels. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Hmm. Dustin's like me. He doesn't read novels. <laughs> Unless they're old or have pictures. He watches movies instead. Good lord, that's a perfect frowny face. He's My heart is sad. He's frowning because he knows I'm right. <laughs> that's just really impressive. You could do the perfect They're length. not all old. They're either old or they have pictures. I read The Strain, which okay. is neither old nor has yeah, pictures. Yeah, but Guillermo was involved. Well, that's true. Words. I fell off the wagon with that show. I'm not proud of it. I was on a podcast for it, so that's the only way I stayed yeah. with it. Yeah. Did it get shittier? It's it's meandering in the first yeah, season. It could, it could get better, but... Here's the thing way. is I was on board for the human drama part of it, and then it then sort of... Yeah. At a point, everyone was infected, and I was just like, oh, this is just a zombie show now, yes. and I'm kind of... Yeah. Over it. I'm kind of over it. Better. Really? Yeah. Okay. I am excited for the next Hunger Games. Um, I am also, I just recently saw for the first time, which I'm not proud of, that it's taken me this long to watch it, Zodiac. Um, there's I lots just, of movies. Just watched that. I know, yeah. There's, it's, there's an, it's an infinite universe of there's movies. There's lots of movies, no problem. But seeing that movie and seeing Jake Gyllenhaal in his, like, crazy prime i'm super pumped for nightcrawler mm-hmm. um which i looks good i was gonna say didn't it preview with gone girl i want to say it did with dracula untold i'm ashamed oh, to say. i can't remember gone girl nightcrawler um, I, I think there are it's supposed to be attached to it but the warren is shitty and only shows three trailers so uh, they actually don't show a lot of trailers that are supposed or to be awesome and only shows three trailers no i love going to amc and seeing 12 trailers um, and, and the Warren like shit uh, shortchanges you, and like if you're excited, part of the reason you're excited about seeing a movie is it's contractually carrying a trailer for a movie you're excited about, and then they don't show it. Kind of makes you angry. Then you type into your phone the trailer you're trying to find, and then you and watch, watch it, that it anyway. Way. Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. I live a life. You on delve a instead of watching. Delve into the mystical alternate reality of the universe in the internet, aka the interwebs. Yeah. Yes. Last thing that I'm fired up about is Tulsa Wizard World, which I am going to. We finally get a real Comic-Con in Oklahoma, and that is the end of my fired upness. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Thurgelson. That's that's excellent. I, I want to talk a little bit off mic about dates for that, because that sounds interesting to me as well. Um, I'm not fired up about a whole lot that's going on right now in popular culture, but I do want to mention that Edgar Wright has just come off Ant-Man. You know, there's a big debacle with that Marvel uh, foul-up. But he is, and I'm reporting from Sight and Sound right here and right now, working on a film called Baby Driver that he began developing back in 2008, which is reported as, and I quote, a collision of crime, action, music, and sound. Boner. I'm in. And so I very, very, very much want to see that. Also, I'm a big fan of director uh, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. Um, his uh, Gospel According to St. Matthew is one of my favorite films of all time. And uh, there's a couple of uh, biopics being made right now, one of which is starring Willem Dafoe as uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. I'm all in. I, I'm very excited about this, and it's a film I definitely, definitely uh, want to see. But that's all that I'm fired up about this particular week in pop culture. We've got to move on and wrap up the show. And, dear listener, as we come to the end of the screeching, squealing, sometimes uh, you know, two-cycle engine rarings of uh, the end of Shocktober, we come now to the last film, which will be Toby Hooper's 
the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so next week we'll be taking a look at that. We're very, very excited uh, to have that conversation uh, around this very table then. But until that time, uh, dear listener, we challenge you to have a conversation about movies, about what's going on inside them, how they're put together, and what they may mean. Because as it turns out, they may help us find ways to live more meaningful and satisfactory lives. And until we see you next, we'll see you next time. Tell me about it. <laughs> I hate everything about you. I'm going to start talking about one thing, and it's going to make me talk about something else, so hang tight. Uh, I know I do that sometimes. Or all the time. Yeah, well, sometimes you got to tell one story to tell another story. So, listeners of this show know that I like to talk about... Fuck you. <clears throat> yes, that too. <laughs> listeners of this show um, should be... Let's wait till you guys are giggling. They <laughs> do this to me all the time. This has happened. Oh, the last, yeah. Oh, pretty much all of Shocktober I've said. I'm going to talk about one thing so I can talk about something else. <laughs> all right, good point. <laughs> I'm going to talk about X to talk about Y. All right. I'll talk about Z. Feminism. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> Just because we love well, you. Well, that's not a very feminist thing. I know, that was the point. I'll do our best in a world when Alex gets back over here. That's all I want. Arthur's going to win, but I want him to do it too. In a world where one man tries to make a crochet quilt. In a world where one man tries to make vodka-infused gummy bears. In a world where suddenly the entire economy is controlled by monkeys. How's that different from now? <laughs> Nailed it. Not very much, actually. In a world where one man tries to derail an entire podcast. Put my headphones on. Sugar. <laughs> In a world 
where five podcasters are brutally slaughtered by a group of home invaders wearing sheep masks. <laughs>